welcome to Disinformation Wars, a project of the American Foreign Policy Council. I'm AFPC Senior Vice President Elon Berman. Disinformation Wars is a series of conversations with officials, experts, and practitioners designed to take you behind the scenes of the struggle for hearts and minds of global publics that's now taking place around the world. It's a contest being waged by Russia, China, Iran, and other actors, and the stakes could not be any higher. Although most Americans don't know it, the United States has a secret weapon in its Iran policy, broadcasting. Via outlets like the Voice of America's Persian service and the Radio Farda service of Radio Free Europe, Radio Liberty, we wield a powerful megaphone, one that we should be using to win hearts and minds inside the Islamic Republic, as well as shaping discourse there about America, about the nature of their regime, and about its relationship with us and with the rest of the world. But we aren't. Rather, in recent years, these very outlets have been mired in controversy. Allegations of biased journalism, bad management, lackluster content, and widespread corruptions are just some of the charges that have been leveled at the agencies, and sometimes at the people, responsible for communicating our policies and our messages to the Iranian people. Here, a personal anecdote. Back in 2017, my institute, the American Foreign Policy Council, was asked by the U.S. government to conduct an independent review of its official Persian language broadcasting. We did, and we found a host of serious problems with both the content and the context of what we were saying to Iran and to Iranians. We relayed those findings back to the government and some tactical fixes were indeed made. By and large, however, the situation today, four years later, remains pretty much the same and our Iran outreach is still hugely problematic. What lies at the root of this drift? What are we getting wrong in the way that we communicate with the Iranian people? And are those problems fixable? Those questions should lie at the heart of our current national conversation about Iran. To get a sense of the issue, I turned to one of the country's foremost Iran watchers, Alex Vitanka. Alex is the director of the Iran program at the Middle East Institute. He previously served as senior analyst at Jane's Intelligence Group and as editor of the prestigious Jane's Intelligence Review. His latest book, entitled The Battle of the Ayatollahs in Iran, The United States, Foreign Policy and Political Rivalry Since 1979, was released by I.B. Taurus this spring. Alex, thanks so much for joining me. Great to be with you, Elan. In the last episode of Disinformation Wars, I spoke with Jason Brodsky of United Against a Nuclear Iran, all about how Western media misunderstands Iran, and as a result is missing the big stories that are now taking place within the country. Is that a fair criticism to make of official US broadcasting as well, do you think? Are we missing key trends and key narratives? And are we generally focusing on the wrong things in our official broadcasting? You know, I think, frankly, one of the problems that U.S. government-funded media operations have as far as Iran is concerned is that overarching strategic objective. What is it we're trying to do? To me, when I came to this country about 15 years ago, I thought that sort of programming is supposed to do a lot more in terms of putting America's case forward, in terms of what it is that the United States is, is concerned about in terms of the Iranian regime's behavior. And over the years, I, I wouldn't say I haven't seen any. Of course I have. It's part of it. But it hasn't been as much as one would want to see. And it hasn't been as, as effective as one would want it to be. And as a result, you've seen over the last decade, you know, a number of new operations in the Persian language that have come out. The BBC Persian started first, Manoto, and then the last edition is Iran International they've all come in and sort of taken a good slice out of the, the likes of uh, Voice of America, Persia Service, or Radio Farda, part of Radio Free Europe, Radio Liberty. And I think they might have done it regardless, but I think if Voice of America, Persian Service had been able to 
maintain the interest of the Iranian public back inside of Iran, then the likes of Manhattan Iran International would not have had the success they have today. And I think that's that, that to me is the headline here. I mean, the competition came in because obviously they felt there's a market here, there's an opportunity, and they moved in and they've succeeded. And I don't need anything more than that to tell me that things could have been done differently in terms of the programming, the management of the likes of VOA Persian Service. And, and don't get me wrong. I mean, I have a lot of friends who work there. I respect what they do. But as an organization and as a mission, I think a lot could have been done better, given how much interest there is in the United States on the issue of Iran and, and you know how much resources have been invested in it. So it could have been done better. Okay, so what are those big stories that outlets like Iran International and Monotor are covering and VOA Persian and Radio Farda really aren't, in your estimation? What are the quote-unquote fast movers in the Iranian conversation today? You know, the issues that really tell us what's going on inside the country. Elan, one of the things we have to remember is so much of what they are doing, all these diaspora or foreign-based Persian language media operations, what they're doing is they're delivering a much better service to people who live inside of Iran, who don't have access to what we take to, for granted in, in the West, you know, access to something that looks like free speech. So a journalist who shows up with a microphone and does a decent job covering a certain issue. Uh, it's, a, you know, they don't have access. They don't have access to that in, in Iran. And I think that is what drives these operations forward. I would say, to, to answer your question specifically, I don't think there is anything that, you know, VOA Persian Service or Radio Farda is not willing to do. That's not my, my point. I think they co all cover the same sorts of issues. What, um, what I don't think Voice of America Persian Service does, or Radio Farda, is to, to sort of, if you will, be willing to break taboos and break a few plates in the process when covering a story. I think, you know, take Radio Farda. They do excellent reporting on some of the news around, say, Iran's nuclear program or what Iran is doing in the region. What they could do a lot more on is, for example, covering what is making the Iranian public inside of Iran angry by the state of affairs in their country. To, to me, that's what any journalistic outfit that looks at Iran needs to focus on more than anything else. You know, frankly, we're not, most of us, overwhelmingly most of us who are in, in, in the think tank world or in the media world, we're not part of the negotiations. When these nuclear talks resume in Vienna, we're not going to be there. So we're guessing, we're speculating, we're reporting the, the things that, you know, are fed to us, frankly, oftentimes, right? We just repeat what we hear. You have in Iran a country of 85 million people. That is, there's so much anger inside of that country right now about where the country is. Uh, economically, politically, in terms of its international standing on the, around the world, there's so much one can do focusing on the lives of ordinary people in Iran. And in the process, you can ask those tough questions. And if you upset a few people in the authorities in Tehran, so be it. I just don't think they have done enough of that on the government-funded side among the U.S. operations that we're talking about. I don't know if that's a mandate, a political mandate that comes from above saying, you know, there are certain things we're not going to talk about because we don't want to upset the Iranian authorities too much. I just don't feel that the likes of, um, you know, Manotos, Iran Internationals, BBC Persians have limited themselves the same way. So they have more to say and therefore they have a larger audience.
So you mentioned the nuclear talks and larger U.S. policy, and, and I, I want to drill down a little bit here. Because since taking office, the Biden administration has abandoned the maximum pressure approach of the Trump era in favor of a policy of renewed engagement that's geared towards getting the regime back to the nuclear negotiating table. In the process, though, it's narrowed its focus on Iran itself, and it's spending less and less time on the issues that affect the Iranian population today, uh, issues like succession, issues like the environment, issues like official corruption. What's the danger of doing that, of, of ignoring those issues, both for us and for the Iranian people? I mean, look, the danger is you end up in a best case scenario with another nuclear agreement of sorts, similar to perhaps the one that they reached in 2015. And who knows, they might be able to revive most of that package from five, six years ago now. And that's fine. If that's what your policy priority is, you don't care about anything else. You only care about that ticking a nuclear clock and you set out to sort of put it in a box, as they put it, or contain it. The problem we had last time around, recent experience teaches us, is U.S.-Iran relations are much more complicated than just simply being about one nuclear program, although obviously it's, the, it's by far the biggest concern at the moment. But there's so many other things that the U.S. cares about. And if you put all those things away and pretend they're going to go away, they won't. They'll be there and they'll eat away of anything that you might reach on the nuclear front, which basically means the political confidence you would need to have to sustain a nuclear deal will not be there. It's about confidence and trust. And that didn't happen. I mean, between 2015 and the Trump administration pulling out of the nuclear deal in 2018, you could argue the Iranians say the Americans didn't do much to, to sort of you know, build up on the nuclear agreement. The Americans say the Iranians didn't do anything. They didn't change their policies in the region. They didn't pull out of Syria. So it really depends who you ask. But the point I'm trying to make is it, this is about political confidence that you need to build up uh, in, in Tehran and in Washington. And uh, frankly, I mean, on the Iranian side, I spend most of my time following the debate in Tehran, not in Washington. And I mean, they haven't even made that decision in terms of what they want out of their American policy. The fact that the you know, Biden administration has now been in power for whatever it is, 10 months, and um, the Iranians refuse to negotiate with him directly, face to face. I mean, what does that tell you? Are they playing politics? What are they, What is this brinkmanship, this posturing all about? So I definitely think on the Iranian side, there isn't a clear cut vision in terms of what they want this nuclear deal to do. Clearly what they want quickly is sanctions relief. And what they don't want to accept is that's a problem for any American administration that you just give Iran sanctions relief. But so much of what else Iran is doing that is upsetting to the United States will not you know, go away. Then why give them sanctions relief in the first place? Why not you know, push for a harder bargain? But what I'm trying to say, Elan, is that on the Iranian side, if Supreme Leader Ali Khamenei wanted to make the decision that this time around, he wants to use the nuclear negotiations as a way of, of turning the page, enter a new chapter, then I think he could supervise and give space to his negotiators to reach something that isn't going to be limited just to, uh, to uh, you know number of centrifuges. It's going to be something where Iran kind of accepts the reality that a broader conversation is required to talk about all sorts of issues, to provide the kind of confidence where you can then continue the dialogue and, and that in turn helps sustain a nuclear deal in the longer term. Otherwise, you know, we can have another temporary deal in a couple of years time. We'll go back to where we were before.
So Henry Kissinger once famously said that the Islamic Republic of Iran needs to choose which one it actually is. Is it a country or is it a cause? Do you agree with that assessment? What's the regime doing in foreign policy terms? And are those things accurately being captured in the media and accurately understood by our policymakers, do you think? No, I think uh, Henry Kissinger was onto something here, definitely. And I think, you know, that was true in 1979. And I think that is, to, to a large extent, still true today. One thing for sure is that the Iranian public opinion is extremely agitated by the foreign policy agenda of the Islamic Republic more and more Iranians not only realize, but openly uh, criticize that there is a direct link between what Iran is doing in terms of the realm of foreign policy, what it's doing in region, in places like Lebanon, Syria, Iraq, Yemen, and Iran's isolation, which they're feeling in their pockets, right? Isolation and sanctions means job losses, lack of income, inflation, brain drain, all the bad things that any economy could do without. These are happening in Iran, and people see that as a direct uh, you know, outcome of foreign policy choices that the Islamic Republic has made since 1979. And I think, you know, if one could take specific cases, for example, let's take Yemen. What is Iran right now investing in Yemen for? I mean, you could you could say it's it's for geopolitical purposes, is to advance its regional agenda and all the rest of it. But one hard truth is the following: Iran hasn't been able to create many jobs back in Iran because of its involvement in Yemen. And I would say you could make the same argument in terms of Iranian involvements in in other parts of the Middle East. And by the way, Ilan, we all know Iran is not the only country in the Middle East that engages in the use of proxy forces, that other countries are also engaged in advancing their regional interests. But the case with Iran that to me is unique is how long it's been doing this since 1979 and at what cost it's been willing to do it. I mean, you could make the point that Turkey today is also uh, hugely involved in, in all sorts of regional adventurism. And I know the Turkish economy isn't doing great, but guess where Iranians are investing in large numbers today? They're taking their money from Iran and investing in Turkey. So you could blame Turkey for approaching the same uh, you know, foreign policy questions, similar at times to, to the Islamic Republic of Iran. But the fact is the Turkish people are not suffering the way the Iranian people are suffering. And, and that, to me, makes, uh, makes Iran stand out as, as a country to, where the question becomes, how long more can the Islamic Republic pursue the cause over the nation state, over building up the nation, the homeland, over creating jobs, providing water, electricity, and that sort of thing that you know, average citizens care about a lot more than Ayatollah Khamenei's foreign policy obsessions about rescuing the likes of Bashar al-Assad. And I think that gets us nicely to the $64,000 question, the proper role of media in outreach towards Iran. What's the mission of outlets like Voice of America supposed to be? And are they fulfilling it, do you think? I would uh, argue that you want to provide the best sort of information and analysis that you can provide to the people of Iran and educate them and counter the narratives that are coming from the Islamic Republic. And frankly, it's not that hard because you have a very uh, receptive Iranian public today. They've heard the, the, the slogans of the last 42 years, and by and large, with a 15 to 20% of the population that still, for whatever reason, might be behind the Islamic Republic, a clear majority, 80, 85%, 
no longer support this system. They do want to want to hear information and analysis and other hard truths that would justify their anger. When was the last time any of us picked up a very good programming on the issue of the long-term cost of brain drain on the Iranian economy? If you listen to Iranians inside of Iran, lots of the intellectual class talk about how Iran, the country of Iran, is a danger because the policies of the government have created so much tension inside of Iran, but also created so many enemies around in the neighborhood. Um, so people are now worried genuinely about ethnic separatism. These are the types of things that a, a government that had done its job and protected and provided for its people wouldn't worry about the citizens looking for alternative political models, including the existence of country uh, of Iran as, as it has existed for some 5,000 years. So, you know, back to your question, uh, Elan, in terms of what could be done, you could make much more, I think, scientifically, well, scientific sounds a bit perhaps pompous, but certainly with much more meat in terms of what's going on to the fabric of this society. When you are out there investing outside of the borders, what are you doing to the, the youth inside? Why is it that you have the, for example, going back to the brain drain, why is it that professors and doctors and even students who are admitted to foreign universities are not, are they leaving or unwilling to go back when they're done with their studies? Something is seriously wrong. We know that. We, we, we hear the anecdotes. But what is the cost? What is the long-term cost of an authority in Tehran that, you know, oftentimes when you read Iranian state media, they're so great that they, for example, had a bunch of people in Nigeria convert to Shia Islam. Wonderful, wonderful piece of news. What they don't tell you is at what cost. And what they don't tell you is how many people in Iran are abandoning Shia Islam. If you might have five converts in Nigeria, but you had 50,000 people who no longer go to mosque because they had given up entirely on religion because the government, the Islamist system has put people off from, from religion. I think there are so much one could do in terms of tracking the mood that you can measure in society and the anger that shows itself in so many different ways. That can be done. And I think once you do that systematically over a certain period of time, it just becomes impossible for any regime, including the Islamic Republic, to just turn its head away and ignore it. And it becomes a, a, a factor that they need to take into account. For too long, the Islamic Republic has gotten away with ignoring public sentiment and anger and just sort of saying things like, if you don't like it, pack up and please emigrate. That's why you got six, seven, eight million Iranians around the world today. They didn't, there weren't Iranian immigrants 42 years ago. So what happened? Why are Iranians leaving? Well, they're leaving for good reasons, but one could try to make the argument that everybody can leave because if everybody left, there won't be any Iran left. So how do you empower the ones who want to stay? How do you get them to become taken seriously by Ayatollah Khamenei and the Revolutionary Guards? And I think that takes us perfectly to my last question, and you started to answer it already. The question of how do we get things back on track? How do we do better? in terms of understanding Iran here in the United States and in the West, and of our messaging to the Iranian people? Look, I think, you know, one of the things that the U.S. has been good at, and I've, I think that's been true for successive administrations, is your average Iranian does not believe 
that the United States or Americans are against Iran, the country. They, they see it for what it is that the United States and Iran have political differences, have had a bad blood, the history has been complicated. And I think at, at the bare minimum, that's a success. Because for 42 years, the Islamic Republic propaganda machine has told the Iranian people, anything anywhere in the world that goes wrong is America's fault, including anything that goes wrong in Iran. The Iranian people don't buy that. And that, to a large extent, is, is very positive. Because I do think that United States and Iran, they don't need to be the best of buddies, but it certainly need not be what it is today in terms of relations. There's a large, dynamic, educated, wealthy Iranian-American community that can be a bridge. They are oftentimes involved in the sort of things we're talking about here. For example, media operations, they are part and parcel of that. They are showing what America is and how America has treated Iranians who have come to live here over the years. And that the propaganda of uh, the Islamic Republic is that propaganda. What could the U.S. do differently? I, I think the United States, certainly in terms of the government-funded media operations, strategically make a decision uh, what it is we want to get out of it. It doesn't have to be about market share. What percentage of Iranians listen to Radio Farda on their radio or watch it on TV? It, it could be that, I guess, but it doesn't have to be just that. It could be something simpler in terms of what we're trying to do is to help in any way we can educate the Iranian people about some of the problems the country is facing. Take water shortages, take drought, take migration from rural areas to urban areas, take the housing crisis. I mean, the list is long, but do a solid job that nobody can come and say, well, that is American propaganda aimed at the Iranian public. This sounds a bit almost too simple to be true, but I, I believe it is true. United States and the government's uh, media operations here, they don't need to make things up. They don't need to manipulate the realities. The realities are very stark and people in Iran know about them to some extent, but they could know so much more. And I just don't know the, the answer to this question. Well, knowing what's wrong, would that mobilize you to, to put pressure on the government? A. B. Does the government care? Does Ayatollah Khamenei care that there's a drought? Maybe he doesn't care. But we haven't even tried. And I just think there's so much one can do in terms of getting uh, that information for the sake of those people who love Iran. And the idea of the country of Iran staying uh, intact, they need to know what the long-term problems are. We are at a point where the rest of the region is moving ahead on, on technological fronts in terms of investment. And Iran is stuck trying to figure out what to, to do to sell its crude oil. Back in the 70s, Iran was in a different place. Iran had the same per capita in, uh, income as South Korea. And look at South Korea today, seventh largest, eighth largest economy in the world. And where is Iran? What happened? Again, you can say what happened, but you can provide genuine, solid evidence. And as I said, I don't know what the people of Iran can do with that information. It might do something. It would certainly keep the momentum, the pressure on the authorities. But the other hard truth is, Ayatollah Khamenei, the Revolutionary Guards, have the guns and for now are willing to use it to stay in power. But how much more they can withstand this pressure coming from a public, from, from grassroots, from the bottom up, that we can't dismiss. And it, it might be something they can't control forever and ever. Alex, thanks for a terrific conversation. This has been wonderful. Thank you, Alan. Great to be with you.
Thank you for tuning in to Disinformation Wars. To learn more about the American Foreign Policy Council and our work on public diplomacy, visit us online at www.afpc.org. And, as always, we hope you'll join us again next time. <laughs>